Welcome to Last Call with Jamie and Christian, sponsored by Speakeasy for Sport. Our guest today, been the NCAA tournament 22 times, three national title game appearances, one as a head coach, two as an assistant, a combination of eight Coach of the Year awards, nearly 700 victories, two gold medals, a mother of two, a wife, and the author of Secret Warrior, a coach, a fighter on and off the court. Coach Joanne P. McCauley, that's a great list of accomplishments. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. And thank you for such a kind introduction, Jamie. It's great to be on your podcast. Well, you earned it. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, uh, it's been great doing this podcast. We've been had a chance to introduce new people to the world of basketball and people mm-hmm. that I've been really interested in. And in my email to you, I was basically being a fanboy about how impressed I've always been with your career. And I absolutely loved reading your book, Secret Warrior. Um, congratulations on writing it. Uh, you can tell, and I'm telling our listeners, you can tell to the depths that she goes to explain the story, uh, her, her story, her journey so passionately. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. It was a labor of love, no doubt. And um, it was writing it alone was a challenge, you know, not with any kind of writer assisting me. I, I really had to learn a whole lot and definite rookie, um, but I'm glad I could share the story. Well, you know, you're you're used to kind of jumping into it and, and attacking something. I mean, you're a head coach at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're used to kind of learning on the, on the fly. So I'm sure you kind of figured this out midway through. And like you've done everything in your life, you start to excel on it pretty quickly. Again, just a fantastic, uh, fantastically written book with your voice. You can tell the pain of some of your struggles and you can tell the joy of, all, of, a, of a, lot, a lot of your life. So it's it's just amazing. Encouraging everyone out there to buy it, read it and really enjoy it. When you decided to write the book, what was the final part of it that said, I, I've got to do this. I've got to write this. I've got to get this story out. I had thought about writing it for a long time. Never thought it was a good time because my student athletes, I would take the attention away from my student athletes. I would bring attention to something that was personal and didn't really need to be the focus. And so I waited and waited. And then I could feel my career kind of winding down, you know, at Duke, just relative to the time I'd spent there, kind of ready to move on past the torch a little bit. We had finished third in the league in my last year at Duke. And it was quite a adventure to get to third because at one point we were 10th, I believe. So it was a crescendo all the way. And as I felt it was time to sort of do something else, that's, that was sort of, I guess, the timing to write it. And it was always in me, so I wrote it very quickly. It didn't take long uh, to get that done. Now, it took a longer time to work with our editors, my publisher, and things of that nature, but to get the story down, uh, was it was down pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, I, I love, and again, we're with Coach P as as her, as her players would call her, and hopefully I can call you that today. Yeah. Or, um, but and I have a ton of notes here. So if you leave me, see me looking to the side a little bit, because I have a ton of notes and I want to make sure we hit on everything. And um, one of the things I thought was really was really neat was your passion for for basketball in Maine and mm-hmm. having a chance to come back there and be the head coach. You could really feel through your pages and through your writing how passionate you are about where you're from and have an opportunity yeah. to kind of give back there. Oh, it was an incredible opportunity. Mike Plazic was the athletic director at the time. And I was 26 years old and unproven, but yet I had been with Joe Champy at Auburn and been to those, you know, the lead eight and the final four. And, and I, I sort of learned the process from Joe about what that was all about. And we were thrilled to have the opportunity. And I was at Maine for eight years, eight incredible years. And that's where I had my diagnosis. And that's where I had a couple episodes. And I really look at those Maine teams as incredible human beings for the way they supported me and stayed by me during difficult times, because you have to remember that was 27 years ago and nobody was talking mental health, brain health, mental health impairment, bipolar disorder. No one uh, said anything remotely close. And I was actually encouraged to tell my team that I was suffering from exhaustion after having my first child, my, my daughter, Maddie. And it was a year after having Maddie that I had my, first episode. And so it was different time then. And the acceptance has come along a long way, but not far enough. 
I definitely yeah. not far enough. And, and we can tell how passionate you are to working towards that. And, you know, my question while I was reading was basketball is such a high pressure performance mm-hmm. opportunity as a player. You're a great player, played at Northwestern, just an, an elite player, um, one of the best players in the state of Maine, or as you might say, the best player in the state of Maine. <laughs> And so were there any things that happened along the way when you kind of look back? I mean, one of the things when you go through what you've been able to go through with all the different doctors and stuff you work through is you look back at the past. Was there anything, you know, maybe in your, in, in, you know, as a player, when you were in high school and college that, that were, you were kind of teetering and you just didn't have a chance to, to, to learn it in that moment? You know, there was nothing that I knew of teetering or otherwise. I was always very competitive and I was very intense and focused, but there was nothing to indicate this would happen or any, I mean, it really was like getting hit over the head in a way that I just cannot describe. I mean, in one second, you're an entirely different person having this episode. And I strongly feel, and as do my doctors, that my hormonal changes and shifts in my body relative to giving birth, not to mention the high stress and the lack of sleep that I had prior to the episode was all sort of a a perfect storm and something that I was not prepared for. And I'm grateful I had people around me, not a lot of people around me, but within my circle, a small group that could understand and my husband was terrific because he's a scientist, he's an economist, he's a chemist. And so for him, it was all very simple. It was a brain chemistry issue and we need to get the bottom, get to the bottom of it. So no, there were no flags. And unfortunately with this disorder, there often aren't any. And so you, you don't get a warm up. Yeah. you know, it, it's like being thrown into overtime, triple overtime <laughs> without even starting the game. You know, it just, it's an interesting experience to say the least. And my second episode only occurred because I stopped taking my medicine. And that's the stubborn nature of being a former athlete, thinking that I don't need this stuff. You know, I, I felt better when I took my medicine. So I decided I would go off my medicine. So that cost me greatly. And that was a lesson apparently that I had to learn to accept what was happening to me. Yeah. You know, I, I asked you that question because you know, through the years of coaching and, you know, there some of those hormonal changes between 17 and 22, 23 year olds naturally mm-hmm. happen to a lot of our players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm constantly, my mother was a special education teacher for 35 plus years. My dad's an wow. educator as well. So maybe my perspective's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I've always been really cognizant of trying to see as people are changing. And so that's why I asked that question. Mm-hmm. It's just because especially now, you know, the statistics say right now after COVID, teenagers are experiencing more anxiety than ever. Yes. And then we're also in, encountering a large population that's been medicated um, as they as medicated since their children getting into college. So there's yes. a lot of these different factors. When you talk about the chemistry that I think as coaches, you know, you're trying, you should be factoring in to your assessment of your team as you're watching them grow. Yes. And I think it's more than, you know, this just anxiety that popped up. My son is 22 and uh, graduated 2022 from Northwestern. And I can see in him, I I mean, the feelings for them about lost time, you know, what could have been, I remember him telling me, I'm not ready to be, to leave Evanston. I'm not, I just got going, you know, I just made friends and connected. And then suddenly he's graduating, you know, with basically 50% of the experience Um, that you and I had and so many others had. And so it's this incredible regret. You know, it's it's deep and it's carved in there and it is causing that anxiety, that that deep breath, you know, that and that heart palpitation and that because I, I just don't think that they can fathom all these individuals, all of the students, what they lost. And they'll never and they'll never know. And then on top of it, we don't have referent power. It's not like we can say, oh, well, we went through that and I know what you're feeling. You know, it's, it's, that's another piece of the anxiety is parents or mentors. We can't really say that we've got to listen and listen as much as possible. And we just don't have that referent power. And that's a unique situation in leadership, how we deal with these young, young people and help them uh, cope beyond 
beyond the loss because yeah, it's real, it's real grief. It's yeah. real grief. And that's a great point. I mean, you think about all the different checklist items that you have between 16 and 22 that sort of prepare you for the ability to make decisions. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And there's, and there's really small things to us, but I think over the, over nature of it, there are pretty, pretty big things, you know, from picking your date to prom or what you're going to wear and how you're going to get there to what college you want to go to and what options you have for that, or, mm -hmm. you know, taking your college visits and having a chance mm -hmm. to work through what's most important to you and, you know, getting, being able to get a feel and, you know, our, this generation has been I mean, shortly in, in a short time frame has been stripped of some of those decision makings. Even when you get to your freshman year of college, the first time you're away and having to make real life decisions of safety and alertness and understanding, they haven't had the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it'll persist for a while. This is this kind of anxiety. And, you know, this what I'm feeling and seeing is not going away anytime soon. It's it's going to take a lot of uh, patience and understanding and education and recognition that it's real and it needs to be dealt with. And right now, our medical people, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, uh, social workers, they're just overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, overwhelmed. And, and I just think that there needs to be a lot of talk therapy a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I believe strongly in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's something that I've experienced through my life. And, and it's, it's important to be able to have somebody help you take negative feelings, negative thoughts, the, your negative views of the world and your situation and turn them and carve them to something more positive and constructive. And it can't be done in one session it has to be done through time to get you to understand that this would be a better way to look at the scenario and to think. Yeah, I love that. I love, and again, I'm taking notes down as we speak. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> learning about these different kinds of therapies and how one can be impacted, you know, CPT? Uh, CBT, Cognitive CBT. Behavioral Therapy. Um, yeah, affectionately CBT. And again, I'm not a medical expert you're not a medical expert, but the point is that we need to educate ourselves and know this is out there and read about it because even the, the awareness to it and sharing it with my child and others that I talk to, just read about CBT, read about what it is because it's not, doesn't involve medication, but it involves this idea of reframing, you know, reframing. And that, that's what's so critical is, is to read. There's so much reframing that needs to be done. Yeah, we just had Ethan Cross, the author Chatter. Um, we just recorded with him last week. He'll be actually the podcast before yours, and he talked a lot about the power of reframing. And you know, um, his big things about Chatter is about how you control the voices that are bouncing around in your head and understanding what they're each trying to do. And it's a really, really great, great book, great book, mm -hmm. great work that he did there. Let's talk about your first episode, and I, 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 I applaud you so much for going so deep into your husband's strength um, to take you to the facility. And, and, you know, I, I can't imagine how hard, like I'm thinking on, you know, I have great big empathy. So I'm thinking how hard that had to be for him hmm. um, to take you there. And, and I, I applaud you for, for writing that experience. Um, yeah. I mean, there was no playbook, you know, getting back to basketball, absolutely no playbook. There's no scouting report. There's nothing. And you just have to go by instinct and go by trust. And the way in which, I was in denial. They had to quote trick me. I mean, they had to, if they were telling me I was going to go to the hospital, then I wouldn't have gone. And in my mind, as we were driving there, I'm thinking, Oh, okay. There must be something wrong with John and we're going for him. Even when we drove in the parking lot and I was sort of, where are we, what are we doing? And I thought, you know, I'm sort of thinking, well, he needs some help. And so I'm here to support him. And then they took me up second floor, I think it was. And I just never forget that door shutting. Yeah. Because the door shuts and John's on the other side and they tell him to walk away, you know, walk away, get on the elevator and leave. And, you know, just the, the rage I had, you know, and I, every, and the windows and everything was so thick. And I tried to bang on the windows and, you know, I ran all over this floor trying to get out and, I mean, it took me a while. I mean, I was exhausted trying to get out. 
And then they had to be aggressive with me. Um, and that was an experience in itself. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell the, from reading, I couldn't tell the time frame because obviously when, when you're in the midst of it and that you, you, I feel like you told it with such detail. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, this is, and so you couldn't tell the time frame of, of what it was when, until you calmed down, but you could tell that there was a major struggle. Yeah, it was hard. And I think, you know, again, psychiatry is complicated and this hospital did the best that they could. And this was a long time ago, yeah. you know, so being tackled by three men and held down isn't exactly, you know, what you want for anybody, you know, at all. And so I think that and having a shot, you know, flipped over, given a shot, you know, all of that, you know, it, it added trauma, it added yeah. trauma, no doubt. And I think that we have to be clear about this with hospitals and, and find the best ones and get the right models. And, you know, then later my, my, I've only had three episodes in my lifetime. And my last episode was actually leaving coaching, which is something that you and I could both speak about yeah. leaving coaching. But the difference between the hospital I was in then and the one I was in back in the day was incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Incredibly different. And that's, that's a good thing. We're, we're, we're making progress. Yeah. It, it, it's, there's this pressure in head coaching uh, to perform and, you talk so much about your sleep and how it helps to regulate you. Mm -hmm. How are you able to change? Like I, I'm asked this for myself um, <laughs> because I, I don't know how to change my sleep habits. And I feel like that's one of the hardest things mm -hmm. to do because in some ways you were in our position because we can go harder, longer than mm -hmm. most people. Um, that's about part of being a high, highly driven person. How are you able to regulate your sleep and, and still feel like you're performing at the highest level? Well, you know, again, when anything's a priority, you're going to get it done. And so for me, I kind of had a boring life. I mean, I never went out socially during the season. Never. I mean, I have a dinner with friends after a game, but what I'm saying is not anything socially beyond that. So I live, lived a controlled life. And I just knew when you take your meds at the same time, when you don't have a TV in your room, when you take a bath religiously to get your body sort of calmed down, when you've exercised for over an hour in the daytime and you've done all your scouts and your film watching and practice and being with student athletes and all of that, you're pretty exhausted. One of the blessings of the work was that I could get into a routine and I was worked hard, so I was exhausted. And I had to make sure that I had seven hours sleep or more, not six, not five, not four. And when we had those road trips, I would come home and I, I was really tired when we went to the film room the next day, but we generally did not have practice. And so I would know that that night I really need to focus and, and catch up. So exercise was a big part. I'm a good eater. You know, I don't eat past seven or eight o'clock. I don't feel good if I do. Um, so basically you have this routine with, with bathing or anything else and reading, reading at night's important, you know, letting your mind slow down. So all of these things I had become very good at since I was at, you know, after leaving Maine um, and we left Maine on a really high note, beating Stanford in the NCAA tournament was kind of cool. And so then going to Michigan State and having an incredible run there. So I had a lot of training, you know, through through my career. And um, it, it was just a remarkable career, one in which I enjoyed so much. And the student athletes always brought the best out in you. This doesn't mean that you didn't get upset with them. And it doesn't mean that you didn't challenge them because I was a very fair coach, but a tough coach. And but they still brought the best out in you. 95% of the time. And it's a great profession. Um, I miss it, but I don't, I know I moved on to other things that are important. Yeah. You know, I certainly feel that. I mean, again, as a person who loved watching your games and watching how you all interacted and how you guys interacted in the media, you could tell your connection with your players is it, number one. It's real. Mm -hmm. um, you could tell they always felt like you had the best uh, the best in mind for them. And you can feel that. I mean, maybe as a coach, you can see that when you watch. Uh, I'm not sure the general fan can notice those kind of things, but mm -hmm. I've always loved that. I always felt like you you were 
you're definitely tough. Like I could tell you were a competitor. Like, I didn't need to read your book to know you were a competitor. Um, but I felt like you were able to really be able to com- be a competitor, but then also like your kids laughed or smiled and then competed. Yeah. And I think that's the real credit to the leadership they're able to have during that time. I don't know how you feel about when you step away from coaching, but all you remember is the much fewer examples of not being at your best. You know, like there were, if you look across the board, you're, you know, 80% of the time you're able to affect people and have great challenges and conflict, but all of it really goes to a special place. But there are always a few, you know, that you couldn't reach yeah, or, you know, you didn't have a chance to reach or, you know, something didn't quite go as well. And unfortunately, when you leave, you think of those relationships more than the positive ones. Yeah. That's, that's tough. I think for us former coaches. Yeah. And I would say, and I say this to people all the time, when I, when I work with and mentor younger coaches, what you're going to teach, they may not pick up today or tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. And it's what you're teaching is so much more than, than what you're going to be able to win in the game or be able to do in the game. And they, they may not realize for 20 years, what you're really trying to teach them, but they're going to eventually have that moment. And that's why I think your story is revolutionary because to have the success you were able to have and to be able to build the inner circle you needed, it's, it's just unique and it's really special. Yeah. I, well, thank you for saying that. I am. Um, it, it was a unique experience for me and my family. Um, and we were all very committed. And one thing at I know wholeheartedly is how committed we were each place we went, you know, as a Spartan, you know, the blue devils, it didn't matter. Um, you just love the student athletes. I mean, as you know, it's, it's that, that interaction and for, for brain health, it's, it can be so positive because it's constant human interaction. And I can't tell you how many times if I was having a day where I was feeling kind of down, let's say about myself or something, I can't tell you just going to practice, you know, instantly get you in a mindset. And, it's the best part of the day every day. Oh, gosh, I miss practice. I miss yeah. writing up practice. I miss the training table after practice. Yeah. And hanging out with the team. Matter of fact, I miss all that more than games, which is a terrible thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I feel the same way. You know, the games to me were the chance for the players to go and perform at their best. Yes. Um, You know, if I really feel like we had done our job, they're going to be prepared and and they're going to be able to attack. You know, there's things you got to do as a coach. You can't push those things off. But I, I think you're a good coach when you love the process of it. Yes. The process. Amen to the process. Yes. Love that. I love being in the process, and and now of course I'm I'm in a I have a much much larger team. Yeah, because I have all ages. You know, everybody um, mental health impairment and challenges does not discriminate. Yeah, it does not discriminate, and so I'm talking to all sorts of people. Again, not as a medical expert, I stay yeah. in my lane, but as somebody is a coach has coaching experience, and I can share my story and and help people take steps um, to get to a a little bit better place for them. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you get a chance to do now. Um, um, What are your favorite parts of it? And, and what are some things that, that you didn't expect to be a major positive? Uh, Gosh, I, I love so much of it. I'm sort of a full-time philanthropist. I'm raising money for a brain health foundation that we would like our family to have. And so that takes a lot of work. I don't take a salary. You know, when I, when I speak, I don't get me wrong. I take the money uh, for the foundation and of course for any costs or whatnot. So I, I've really enjoyed the corporate world. I've done a lot of corporate speaking. I'm very fortunate to have a, a great speakers bureau, APB, but I signed on with APB. So that was wonderful. Um, found a fabulous agent and that was through a connection with a former athletic director and really a neat story and hired an administrative assistant. And that's the wife of one of my former assistants. So, you you know, you just, you start seeing networks evolving so differently. And my favorite thing is the student athletes and the students at any, whether I was at Mississippi state, uh, Tennessee tech, Bowdoin college, 
I just did one recently, a Zoom with Meredith. I did a Zoom with Syracuse. Anytime I'm interacting with student athletes, we talk coaching um, and building team and all of that. And then we talk about mental health as well. So it, it, I'm always Coach P, you know, and, I, and now I'm Coach P for life. And when I came up with that tag, it was Coach P, the number four, because I'm a Final Four coach and proud of that. For life, meaning we're going to live and aspire, you know, this idea of um, death by suicide. Uh, no, it's not an option. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, and I think that some of this coaching talk is necessary. Like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Like, let's no, no, we're not not quitting on things. We're going to stay stick to the process and move forward. And, you know, I've had talks enough to have people come up to me enough to say that it really helped them realize maybe that isn't an option yeah you know and so it's so hard that that whole thing is so complicated so complicated but the more we tell stories and the more we share the more we can help young people and and they've got to hear them it's it's got to go beyond you know a psychiatrist so it's got to expand the team of brain care brain health has to expand and coaching is needs to be a part of it so that young people can respond at all different levels because young people often don't have a therapist. Yeah. And, you know, they don't have a psychiatrist that they're, they're in this unknown area. And my trailer is about two and a half minutes long and it clearly tells my story. And that's been helpful because I can play the trailer. They immediately know my story and then we can get to the thick of things yeah. and really, really talk. Yeah. It, I think, and one of the things we've really tried to do in the last few years was build a, a mental health team for mm -hmm. our players. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that, you, that you're a part of is normalizing the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and by having, you know, you have your athletic trainer around. You know, I mean, people don't realize how long it takes for your players to trust your athletic trainer. It yeah. might take them a year and that's their body. That's their life force mm -hmm. um, to move on. So when you start bringing in other specialties, it takes a little bit of time for them to to understand the resource that's around them and then, to, you know, have the, the ability to go and ask for help if they need help. Um, yes. so we we yeah. tried to really put a lot of people around. Um, so there's going to be, you're going to connect with someone. We didn't know who, but we wanted to have a team of people that, that were there for their mind. Well, I think that's great. And also I will tell you one of my greatest frustrations has been this attitude that we got it covered. You know, we got it, we got it covered in-house and, and I'm thinking, Okay, you have a coach who coached in a national championship who's had this, this disorder and knows a bunch and is a motivator and can share. And that's not, I mean, that doesn't fit in. And that's the part that I don't like about brain health is there's a sort of secrecy about it, you know, within institutions. And I'm not yeah. saying every institution, but many of them. And I, that, that's very disheartening to me because I, I agree with you. It's going to take a lot of pieces, all your in-house pieces and speakers coming in to really have something authentic. I'm not talking about a motivational speaker randomly, that they have some authentic story to tell so that a young person out there can say, wow, if she's going to handle that and do this, well, then I can do this, you know, and, and it just it, it's been so um, incredibly heartbreaking and also so motivating to me to to hear and, and see what's out there uh, with young people and what they're thinking. And yeah. they're, very, they're very bright and they're really trying to get answers. Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, you and I are on the same pages. I think trying to figure out the, trying to figure out there's got to be a combination of things that are happening mm -hmm. for people to feel comfortable enough to share. Um, mm -hmm. yes. and, and I agree with you. I've been really disappointed in administrations when they, when they feel like they have it covered in house, it's like, Oh, we have this person. Um, and I'm like, well, what if they don't connect with that person? <laughs> you know, like there's so much more. And I feel like college, I, I do feel like colleges and universities have such an opportunity to get ahead of mental health and to really have, I mean, we basically worked at little cities. <laughs> so, yeah. right. And we worked at little cities. So, you know, if that's a priority, then having that team for, for, for not just the student athletes, for the students could really be beneficial. And I think there's an opportunity for some athletic department university to spearhead this and to be the very best in the country at it. Because everyone is, like you said, everyone's kind of saying, we have it handled. Instead of saying, how can we do this better? 
Yeah, so there's just such a difference between the different, like you said, dynamics, you know, what a psychologist does, what a psychiatrist does. You know, the fact that I've had a therapist and a psychiatrist in itself is a model, you know, and I believe one of our hashtags for Secret Warrior is mentorship matters. And think about the mentors. I mean, my mentors have been extraordinary. Tar Vandeveer, Stanford, Tom Izzo, Michigan State, Coach K, Duke. I mean, I've kind of had some amazing people to sort of follow and learn from. Nick Saban endorses the book on the cover. Um, I don't know Nick really well, but I, I did shadow him for a day, which was an awesome experience. But this mentorship piece, I often talk about this, and it's fairly entertaining to these young people, whether they're students or student athletes. And mentorship matters. You must have people in your life that you can look to and this will help you and guide you. And that's also getting lost. The whole mentorship piece, think about it, the transfer portal, the NIL. I mean, mentors are getting lost and well, the almighty dollar is getting to be the forefront yeah. of m many decisions. Yeah. And it's a, that's a really interesting point. Uh, the mentorship part of that. And, you know, I think some of the best mentorship comes from teammate to teammate. And when you have this, yeah. when you have this calmness about having these conversations or asking for help or needing help and a freshman looks to a junior and says, I'm really struggling with this or, you know, however they phrase it, they don't phrase it that way. Um, mm -hmm. And that junior says, well, you need to talk to this person. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that right. Except that junior is now in the transfer portal. <laughs> could be. Could be. Could right. Be. I mean, um, oh, it's funny. I mean, I built this whole. I built this whole. Uh, I've been working on this thing for. I got a year out right now, and we'll kind of see what happens in March and April. But I, I've basically built this whole thing up where I'm like, how can you onboard? And I think the onboarding becomes super important because you have less time, but you still have the same responsibility to the student athlete and you still have the same compassion to win. Mm -hmm. And I think they weren't, there are two parallel roads that run side to side, side by side. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we've tried to act like they were the same road or roads going in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I'd say one, one term that really drove me out of the business. I mean, transfer portal. Yes. NIL saw it coming down the pike, didn't want it, but the re-recruit, re-recruit, yeah. re-recruit, like, Okay, I get that to a degree, but where are we when loyalty is not even in the equation? Yeah. And then I think about, okay, freshman year, student athlete doesn't know anything. Sophomore year, they know more, but they're never playing as much as they want. So they, they're upset. Right. They always think of transferring after sophomore year. And then junior year, they really get it. And then they're that leader and mentor. And then by senior year, they're just they can basically run the program. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot that, uh, that's going into being a college basketball coach right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's funny, I was talking to, I have a ton of friends who are college administrators and one of my biggest things is everyone needs the whole responsibility for where we are and, and how we're going to get to the next mm -hmm. level. You know, I mean, you know, we're going to be on a college coach interview at some point and they're going to say, well, what are you going to do for the NIL? What do you, well, at some point someone else has got to, yeah. Someone else got to help you, you know, help you, help you build that out. You know, I don't want to be the money manager and, and the guy, you know, just divvying out time and playing time. Right. So it's a, it's a different dynamic, especially in basketball because you have less people in you know, football. They have, they have an army of people over there. I mean, I saw a picture of Florida football and they had more people in polos and they had people dressed in uniform, but yeah. basketball, it's usually what, six or seven of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, it's six or seven of us. And then it's just a different dynamic. So I'm, I'm in, I'm intrigued to see where this thing kind of grows. I'm not against student athletes getting, using their name, image, and likeness, not against any of that. I'm just against student athletes getting bad advice. Well, and, yeah. I, and I agree with you on that. Totally. And here's the kicker though. You can delegate the X's and O's of the NIL, Yep. but you can't delegate relationships. Right. Okay, so this becomes tricky because in recruiting, the head coach must be spending at least 20% of the time, if not more, on what their school will do for them yeah. with NIL. And then, of course, there's the unseen. There's the chemistry and practice that has changed. You know, again, your career, you've had perfect timing. Um, you've obviously worked for that timing, but you stepped away at a good time where yeah. there was mass confusion um, yeah, yeah I no, but I want to say too, I only had one year left on my contract and all of that had to be negotiated. Yeah. And it was sort of like, 
I just didn't, I mean, I left a year's salary on the table when I left Duke, but I, I had to, it, it just seemed like the right time. Although monetarily it wasn't the right thing, Yeah. but I just had to take that step. So I, my timing was interesting. Um, but, but it definitely was right for passing the torch for the next coach. The nature of the way that you're able to get opportunity now is very different than when you became a head coach. Even when I became a head coach, you, you know, now I can basically be a media media marketer and be on the radar to become a head coach. And it doesn't necessarily know doesn't necessarily mean I know how to coach. It doesn't know I know when to call a timeout. You know, like you know, I think I had certain teams where if you scored two baskets in a row, we're calling timeout. And I had some teams if you you know, but it was like a a way that I thought through the game to know yes. when the time was right. And yes, yes. I just don't know, you know, I've really tried to mentor a lot of younger coaches and because I don't know if they know that, you know, I don't think they're thinking that way. Um, maybe, you know, we had really, really strong people we worked with early on. Mm-hmm. Um, now if yes. I was hired as a person who was just supposed to bring in players, maybe I didn't get that kind of mentoring, but I had people that, that, that wanted me to coach. So well, yes. as, as did you. Well, and then, okay, we can describe the timeout in many ways. There's the desperate timeout. Now we're down 14. Oh, this is awful. There's the aggressive timeout. There's the confident timeout. There's the timeout with attitude. Like that is enough. You know, if you're playing Connecticut at Connecticut and they bury the first two threes, you might want to call timeout because (laughs) that that can get kind of meaty. You know, that can get too much. But I, I do, that's one thing I always look at. I look at games, flow of games. You know, flow. How are they flowing? Where's the where's the energy going? Which team has the best, you know, most positive energy and momentum? And so I, I guess I'm an armchair coach. I mean, that clearly I am. <laughs> if I watch it, if I watch most of the game, otherwise you you know you can't say anything. But <laughs> you know, it's it's it's. I love this. I don't get to do this very often. So um, anymore, you know, usually you have your staff. You're kind of doing this all the time. But I love that. I love the notion of like when do you call the timeout and when don't you and when do you let it ride and. I think those are the kind of conversations that to be prepared in the moment, you've got to be having often or just know where you stand with it. Like you yes. said, when you're down 16, you, you know, the, the game's basically over. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, for the most part, and I remember one of my teams ticking my team off. They didn't want me to call a timeout. Okay, so here we are. Bad start. I want to say we were down eight points. Okay, so I call timeout. I am not happy with the team. This is not the way we want to go. Well, they were, this was an older team. Matter of fact, this is a team that went to the national championship and they were ticked at me for calling the timeout. And then I'm like, oh, now I'm going to hear it when we don't get out there and execute. So there's this little attitude going with this timeout. Well, of course they go back out there and rattle off, you know, eight straight points and, you know, the attitude comes back. And then of course, if I take that same team in another game, I, I would, might hesitate and just kind of look at them like, okay, so what are you going to do now? You know, it depends on your team experience, age, leadership, and it's a real tool. I I would love to talk to coaches about it. Yeah. You know, it was funny. My athletic director last year, a wonderful woman, Tanya Vogel. She's, she's awesome. We, uh, I'd call timeout sometimes. And we had a group, we had like a younger group that were, that I want them to learn how to stand on their own. So I would call the timeout, but I wouldn't go into the timeout. Oh and yeah. I would, yeah. And I would just stare at them from the free throw line. Yeah. And then they would kind of rally and figure it out. And usually they went out and played really well after that, you know, because like you said, I mean, you hit it perfectly. It's about the attitude of the timeout. Yeah. It's not necessarily always what you say or what you do. It's about the attitude of the timeout. The attitude. You know, I would write on my my game sheet before, be what they need you to be. Yeah, good one. Right? Yeah, good I feel one. like I watch, when I watch a lot of coaches, they're being what they want to be, running what they want to run, and it's really about what they can accept and what they can handle. And sometimes each game that changes a little bit. Oh, it does. It it clearly does. And and ownership is really important. You know, I remember there were definite times that I would say, eh, you know, I might not have done the greatest thing here. Or I can do better here. You know, you lead that way. Um, but I just I love the the time and score situations. Yeah. I loved them. Um, the team again, that played for the national title, my elite eight teams at Duke. I mean, we had four straight elite eights and that was leadership. Yeah. You know, Jasmine Thomas and players like that. Um, so you, you have those special teams, you know, and you can really work with those special teams because they're the nuances are great because they're very talented and they're well-led. Yeah. I feel like we've got to be really be intentional now, even more so 
with teaching the leadership because well, you've got time. Right. Because there's not going to be inherent leadership from the mentor. So it's I like mean, you've got to get a freshman or a sophomore in on the transfer and be like, this is what we do and this is what we don't do instead of letting them kind of figure that out. Well, yeah. I mean, and I almost believe that everyone can lead. I've never thought it was by age. Okay. Everybody can lead. Everyone's got something to offer. But the challenge with that portal is just that, you know, it's constantly taking away from the connectivity, right? Someone leaves, someone, you know, they're always having to reconnect. And again, there are many teams thriving. Uh, well, teams have to thrive because of the transfer portal. Um, and it's just a different, it's a different situation. And I've seen it go both ways. And I just think for the student athlete, the four-year experience is the best way to go. I mean, if if you can do it, if there's no coaching change and you can work with a coach and kids today don't even tell their head coaches they're going into the portal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how's that? So they go in the portal, but yet then they, then they want to stay when nobody picks them up. <laughs> so you're like, like, what do we do with that one? You know, you know, it's where we're only at GW for three years, mm-hmm. um, 31 months total with the take the COVID months out. So we weren't there um, long enough. But I felt like we were able to get our players to the point where before they went in the portal, they would at least come and ask for advice. And yeah. and I would say, and and like I'm like super honest, maybe too honest. You know, I would say, you know, I had a kid at Mount St. Mary say, Coach, you know, I just feel like if I was in the A10, I'd be, and I said, well, you're going to be, he averaged like 19 points a game in the NCAA tournament. I said, you're actually going to be the highest rate of transfer on the market. <laughs> like, you're not going to go to the A10. You're going to go to Florida, Gonzaga, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm like super honest. But I'd also tell a kid, like, I don't think this is the right move for you right now. Um, yeah, I yeah. think if you want to yeah. make that move, it's a year from now. I would just be so honest. Like, if you make this move now, you're going to be one of 300 averaging one point a game. Well, we really have a value for you next year team with these guys graduating, whatever. So I think getting it to the point where you can have at least the conversation, um, I think is important, but a lot of times they don't tell you, they just go in and out. Yeah. It, it, it's, um, it's really a lot of character that's exhibited through that. And I think that it, it's really challenging. And, and one thing I found out that I, that changed over time, which I don't think is healthy is you have athletic directors trying to entertain your student athletes, talking with them without talking with you. And so I've seen some of that. And again, if you're trying to support your coaches, kids have to come to their head coach yeah. and what, whatever's going on there needs to be dealt with. Um, but there's more and more what I, what I look at when I see different institutions, there's this fear factor, you know, of, I don't know, parents suing bad press, yeah. You know, whatever, whatever you want. So, uh, you know, I see athletic directors stepping outside of what I believe they should be doing where they're trying to be just the, you know, th- that and everything to, to students um, and student, yeah. a- student athletes. And I think that's hard on them. It's been a, it, you know, I don't know what's happened over the last five or six years, but I feel like that relationship with, and, and like all I've wanted in any move that I made was to have an athletic director that we really had great alignment. We're on the same page. And I got that at, at, at all the places it was including GW. And so mm-hmm. I'm always thankful for that. Um, but there is, there, there is something going on with it with administrators and athletic directors right now where they're doing a lot more of that they're meeting with the student athletes and talking with the student athletes. And I don't, I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's good, but I, right now I'm just sort of like, this is an interesting movement amongst administration where before yeah. It went through the coaches and it was done a certain way. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting thing you bring well, up. Well, you pay a lot of money to hire a coach and then you don't trust the coach essentially. Yeah. And I think that for me, when I saw things like this across the board at different places, I talked to different coaches about it. They have never, they're not in practice. Yeah. They're not in meetings. They're, they're not anywhere to know what's really going on, but yet they're acting like they know. And so, you know, you just can't have that. You know, there's just certain things that um, must be sort of, you know, special. And as you suggest, that relationship and hiring coaches and and really showing support for them doesn't mean meeting with the student athletes and then not even telling them. Yeah. You know, I've heard that. I've heard that happening so much more. And I'm like, I just find it so interesting. Uh, You know, I just... Again, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think there should be some rank and file. Well, it's, um, it's not staying in your lane. I feel yeah. bad for athletic directors, right? Because they're out of their lane 
and then a coach is out of their lane if if their student athletes are being intercepted like yeah. everyone's out of you know you just it's you're out of your lane and it doesn't breed good trust and good camaraderie i, I don't yeah. feel yeah I, I, it's funny one of the things that i'll always be looking for and i've i've learned this through the years and it speaks a little bit about this you don't want an administration that feels like they're there to protect the players from the coaches we're all there to support the players Mm-hmm. and to figure out the right way to do that. And I, like what we're kind of speaking of right now is a mindset of the administration's here to protect the, the players from the coaches. Yeah. And it's really <laughs> dangerous because we, we're all working at this together. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough profession on all counts. You know, yeah. athletic directors and coaches, and of course the student athletes are trying to do their thing, and, and they're much younger, you know, at the ages, and they're trying to learn. Um, so it's not easy and it is a labor of love. And I certainly enjoyed more than 30 years if you include my assistant coaching time. So obviously I loved it. Yeah. The good, all the good, all the challenge, all the conflict, all the championships, the confetti coming down, all of it. Yeah. I, before I let you go, I definitely want to ask you this. So I think this is super important. You've been able to put together a great team off the floor for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some what are some key key things that you would offer as advice to someone that's trying to put together a great team off the floor for themselves um, to allow them to go be their very best? Well, I, it's just so important to have people that know you, believe in you, and aren't afraid to tell you yes, no, maybe, you know, that you can really talk with and trust like anything else. I think that our circles do not have to be big. You know, they can be nice, small, tight circles. Um, but yet these are circles that, there's just such a, you know, exchange that can go on. And, and I think that's critical. We don't, we never know it. Nobody arrives. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a process. You win a championship. Well, there's another practice and another day, you know, so you just really have to be in tune to the whole, the process of what we do as coaches. And I think you and I and others, we're coaches for life. Right. You know, we, you're always a coach. If you've been coaching for the years that we've been coaching, you you look at everything through that lens, even if the lens changes colors or gets a little bit wider. And I feel very grateful that I've had that opportunity to grow through that lens. Yeah. And and you also had like a transition between a th- your therapist, uh, I, th- I believe it was your therapist. Mm-hmm. What I, to me that sounds that I'd, I'd be terrified to transition from <laughs> therapist to another therapist. another therapist. I know she was retiring, so it was, you know you had to do it. Um, how was that process for you yeah. um, with the with the transition? It was oh, it was hard. It was my psychiatrist. My okay. psychiatrist was you know, and so I had to find. I never had a psychiatrist in Michigan State. I, I never needed that, and um, but then they they didn't think that was prudent, which because I was doing everything via phone right. or visiting once a year. So she retires. And then I have a wonderful therapist um, here in uh, Chapel Hill, actually. And she got me my new psychiatrist. And so I was very fortunate to have good people. But the problem is it's expensive. Yeah. And I was, you know, very fortunate that I could afford these people. But when I think about mental health care and, and health care and brain health and all of that, boy, we got a lot of work to do. That's why I want this foundation because yeah. I want to be able to give money out in various ways privately so that we can grow it because there's just an awful lot of growth. I mean, you see what the V foundation has done. Oh yeah. You know I mean? It's extraordinary uh, the work they've done. Well, in my, my dreams and my quiet dreams, you know, you want to do something so special to help brain health along the way. Yeah. And, and I think for our, for our, listeners out there, a psychiatrist, the difference between a therapist and a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist can, can prescribe meds, correct? Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. If you've got a a diagnosis, you need a psychiatrist for sure. A therapist is wonderful because they do that CBT a little bit, that that behavioral therapy. Um, And I, I really recommend both for anybody that's got a disorder. And, and the thing I'll caution folks out there with is you can't diagnose yourself. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't play doctor. Don't say, well, I think I have. Well, gee, I don't know. You know, make sure you trust your doctors. You listen to your doctors. You take your medicine and you grow with it as much as possible. Yeah. The Google game is very dangerous. Yeah. The Google game is dangerous. Yes. Dangerous. Especially with brain health. Yes. Um, well, coach, I've really appreciated it. We finish this up always. And the name of the show is called Last Call. So it's the end of the night. 
I'm not sure if you drink or not, if you have a glass of wine or so, but if you have a glass of wine or whatever, you know, but we're at the end of the night uh, on the left side of you, you have a person who's retired or finished with their, with their business on the right side of you. You have a person who's still active and working and learning. You cannot use your parents. Um, what two people, would, what, what person would you have on your left that's retired? What person would you have on your right who is still active and, and, and working? Oh God, <laughs> that's so, that's so hard. Um, well, cause a lot of the people I would put alongside of me are still working. Um, the retirement is a nebulous term, <laughs> but in terms of the people that are still working, oh, yep. Robin Roberts is on that side. Oh, wow. She's oh. excellent. Man, yeah, what an amazing. Question, I got, Robin is that pick, the retired yeah. pick. Robin's yeah. amazing. What a, what an amazing career she's had. Yeah. One of the great joys, uh, she really gave a Secret Warrior a chance. I mean, she had me on GMA and we talked about Secret Warrior and, and she just is, she's a remarkable human being and yeah. one of the greatest. And so clearly I, I would want her uh, to mentor me. And actually I, the person I really would love to talk to is Arthur Ashe. Oh, wow. Why Arthur? Okay. Well, he had that wonderful book, uh, Days of Grace. Mm -hmm. And I read that years ago. And it's funny, you asked me a question earlier where you said, was there anything that made you feel that you might be different or have bipolar disorder? The answer is no to that, except when I was a child and a junior in high school, I said in a class, the only thing I don't want to lose is my mind because mm -hmm. we were talking about various things. So I sort of foreshadowed what would happen and the discrimination that Arthur Ashe had to deal with in all facets of his life as a, as a powerful, strong black man, tennis player with AIDS. I mean, like he yeah. had it on, you know, so many levels. Well, I, I really was taken aback by that book and wow, you know, I would want to be like him if I had something that wasn't accepted. And I actually did. Yeah. Yeah. And you're carrying on the torch in another way. And yeah. And uh, so Arthur, so, Arthur to my left and Robin to my right, Robin to my right. I'm in business. I like, I might, I might try to be the bartender that night yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and keep you guys there a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, Coach P we've appreciated your time. Where can everybody find you at? So our listeners can reach out and yeah, reach and, out. I'm on all social media. And again, it's coach P the number four, uh, and then spell out life. And people can message me, DM, whatever, to get in touch. I am doing all sorts of speaking things. And Secret Warrior is doing great. We've gotten done well with that. And again, all the money raised is going to start a new foundation. And it's going to take it's about a 10-year project. It's not an easy thing to do. But I want to thank you for having me. And, yeah. and having this great conversation. You're really good. You're really good at this. <laughs> no, I just, uh, like we said at the beginning, just two former coaches having a conversation. It's yeah. been a pleasure to have you on, Coach. Thank you again. Thank you.